Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the show. Today, we're talking about managing crown jewel data within organizations. We're going to answer a lot of questions about what that means and what that looks like. Joining me today, we have two experts. We have Trip Hillman, Director of Cybersecurity Services at Weaver. Trip, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Tyler. Absolutely, and we're also thrilled to be joined today by Hunter Sundbeck. He is the Privacy Lead for the IT Advisory Services Department at Weaver. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tyler. Happy to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Hunter, let's start off with you and talk a little bit more about what is considered crown jewel data in an organization. It's probably a good idea to know how to identify this. So, tell us what is crown jewel, uh, crown jewel data. Right. So, it kind of, you know, in the name a little bit, you can kind of just uh, discern like this must be something very valuable you know it does sound important right something that the organization really needs to keep protected keep secret mm -hmm. some would even kind of label it top secret and so this would go into you know some examples um, you know Nike's next shoe release coca-cola's formula uh, a hedge funds algorithm kind of help determine which uh, companies to buy which companies to sell and mm -hmm. that kind of thing so it's essentially the information that would be considered uh, intellectual property, trade secrets, kind of that stuff that really sets an organization apart from the other ones and allows them kind of to conduct business and kind of get a competitive advantage over other companies, offering a, a product or service the other companies aren't able to duplicate. That's basically, in a nutshell, what Crown Jewel Data is. The uh, the special recipe for the herbs and spices at KFC. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. vital, vital stuff. But no, that, that's, that's a great way, I think, of describing it. I think it gives people a good framework for how to understand what we're talking about today. So Tripp, why should an organization really implement a data management program? Uh, give us some reasoning there. Yeah, so oftentimes an organization doesn't know what it has. So, so for these types of data that we're talking about, this Crown Jewel Data, the key that we're looking at is, as Hunter was talking about, you know, this va the valuable sense of this data. We want to make sure that you, we have a method to protect this. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. we think that we're protecting data at, at all of the same levels, and that's really just not possible. We're not able to say uh, we want to apply the best security across all of the organization. While that's a lofty goal, we may have to make prior prioritized decisions on, based upon where we put the data. Is it public? Is it not public? Who's using it? We need to make it available to certain people, to groups. Maybe we need to make it externally available. So we need to be able to have a plan to identify that data and then to make sure that we're securing it in an appropriate manner. And oftentimes, data management and managing your data effectively and efficiently leads to more opportunities sometimes, right? Like uh, giving you more information than you realized that you had at your disposal can open up doors and open up different opportunities. Right, so there becomes an, a very much an optimization that can come from that mm -hmm. as well. So if we can if, you know, readily index the information, if we can have it available and classified appropriately, then it's more accessible to people to use in, in new innovative ways. So Hunter, from your experience and from what you've seen, where do organizations traditionally struggle with data management? Some of the areas that I've seen, especially recently, as kind of the, the whole data privacy, uh, data protection, has become a much more of a talking point for a lot of organizations. We kind of saw cybersecurity take the same path maybe 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And so now data privacy becoming the topic for a lot of boards to be discussing how are we protecting our data uh, defining, you know, your categories of data, what you have, like we mentioned crown jewel data at the very beginning, um, what's public information, what's non-public, uh, what's top secret, you know, really defining what those categories are and just knowing what data you have in place. Like some organizations may kind of not necessarily understand what data they have, they may not know exactly where it is. I've, I've done a couple discovery audits where we're just 
you're just talking to people, figuring out, okay, what exactly do you have? What are your key processes? What data feeds those key processes? Mm -hmm. uh, how is that data protected? Um, so that kind of kind of stuff. That that data as well. We mentioned that you know organizations may not know how it's stored. Uh, dark data essentially is kind of a newer term. I think that's been coming up a lot more recently as something that companies need to be aware of because it kind of has some implications on there that they may not be too, uh, too savvy on and to kind of help protect that stuff. Tell us what dark data is for people that, that might not be familiar with that term. <clears throat> right, so that, you know, like I said, is a bit newer term and it's, it's information that a company collects at some point in time, uh, whether it's unsolicited or not, and then kind of forgets about, basically, mm. is this you know, nutshell definition. So, you know, we collect uh, IP addresses, store them on a web server, and then completely forgot about that kind of stuff. So yeah. that, that would be considered dark data. A company has information they collect at some point in time, probably for legitimate reasons, I'm, just, I'm sure, but then just forgets that it's there and doesn't go back to it and just kind of you know, washes their hands of that process and just kind of like, <laughs> we don't need to worry about it anymore. We're just going to go and continue on with what we're doing. So that in a nutshell is essentially what dark data is. Are these symptoms of people perhaps collecting too much data or not knowing what to do with all of the data that they collect? Because there is so much of it out there, it's possible to get kind of data paralysis and just like, I don't, I don't know what to do with all this. Right, yeah, I mean, great point too, um, you know, the push several years ago and still going on, push for big data, collect as much data as you can, kind of right. helps you make decisions, kind of helps you know uh, what consumer preferences are and that whole thing. So there is a point when a company could be collecting too much data, and, you know, certain privacy laws coming into play, they're kind of trying to crack down on that a little bit, but uh, there is a point where maybe you're collecting data you don't need mm -hmm. as well. Um, stuff that could potentially get you in trouble and stuff you don't need to run your core business processes and kind of set you apart from the other people. So being able to identify that stuff, kind of going back to some previous questions, can kind of help the company know, hey, we do need this, we need to protect it, we need to apply certain controls around it, we don't really need this information so we can get rid of it. I, I do think we want to make the point though that this topic applies to small and large organizations alike. Yeah. And so big data, sometimes organizations may, you know, kind of wave their hands and say, that's, that's, we, we don't do that here. Uh, but really anywhere that unstructured data, so data outside of a table or a database, you know, that can lend itself to being dark data as well. Those mm -hmm. are some of the key points um, that you, maybe we did a survey or we did a one-time project and then we stored that data somewhere. That, that, that information could be ripe for being considered dark data as well. That's a, that's a really good point. And one of the other things I wanted to follow up on was about um, how data can help carry over when there's employee turnover, right? An employee can leave and data still remains. And so good data organization can really make sure that institutional knowledge doesn't leave along with that employee. Absolutely. Everything that we've been talking about, you know, sounds very reasonable on the surface. And most organizations, you know, I, I, most people within organizations, I think, would, would argue that they want this. Mm -hmm. But then it's, it's positioned against growth. And when you have rapid growth, data, proper data management and keeping your data clean and organized and properly categorized can fall to the wayside. And we really rely on people to, to index that information for us. And if people turn over in their positions, if there's not that natural attrition that happens, we can lose uh, the kind of that key metadata that, that lets us know, you know, where, where are we filing this away? What is the index card system that's helping us get to where we need to be and putting that prioritization against our data as well? Mm, that's, that's a really good point. Really, really good point. So where does data management fit within a cybersecurity program, Trip? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is a very fun topic for us. So, so you know, <laughs> privacy and security, you know, you know, we see as overlapping circles. Um, so the NIST framework, you know, we talk a lot about cybersecurity and, and Hunter and I have a lot of privacy security dis, uh, conversations as well, but they're, you know, they're really overlapping. And if you look at the NIST frameworks, NIST has a distinct cybersecurity framework and it has mm -hmm. a distinct privacy framework that, that build upon each other. So there is a natural overlap between these things, but they usually have a different champion within the organization. So we usually have people that are very concerned about is the data secure? And then we oftentimes have people that are very concerned about is the data, you know, uh, private, right? Is it being maintained and classified in an appropriate manner and only mm -hmm. used um, in the proper way? So you, you have different champions and we really, that's where Hunter and I get to work together a lot uh, with different stakeholders within an organization. Could be a general counsel, could be a CIO, um, could be a variety of different titles in the mix, but there's usually two different people driving those, those initiatives or two different departments really driving those initiatives. It's like that meme where the two like strong hands are like clasping each other, right? And it's almost a Venn diagram of sorts, you know, where privacy and cybersecurity really mm -hmm. like lock arms and yeah. work together in this in this case. <coughs> Absolutely. And, sorry, bad pop culture reference, but hopefully it lands with the the people that it needs to land with. So, um, Trip, you were you were talking a little bit about this just now in terms of there's often two champions, and so when that's the case, you know, um, who ends up typically being in charge, and and who should care about all of this? Right, and, and that that mileage, you're like your mileage may may vary. Uh, yeah. we, we will see this in, in different organizations of different size. Uh, honestly, it comes down to sometimes who's going to talk the loudest, <laughs> uh, who's going to talk first, mm -hmm. who who has the more robust program already. So we're talking about things like control activities, right? What are the safeguards that protect our environment? And so usually whoever has the, the more bandwidth to take on these types of initiatives may win as kind of being the, the solid figure, right? But there, there really are two different components, two different perspectives to that that need to be considered. So regardless of who's taking the lead, whether it's somebody that's doing it under the privacy banner or doing it under the security banner, it does need to be a joint effort. You know, and oftentimes we have competing budgets, competing tools, platforms, right to know, all sorts of things that, that mm -hmm. you know, are reasons, uh, barriers for this. But really we need to make sure that there is, you know, kind of that, that cross collaboration uh, to succeed. That's interesting. So this might be an unfair follow-up, but if, if someone comes to you and they're like, Trip, how do we determine, you know, give us a framework for how we should determine, you know, who's, what is whose responsibility and that sort of thing. What sorts of questions would you have people think through if someone came to you for advice on that? Yeah, I think we would look at, you know, how is an organization structured naturally, right? We, we, we don't want to assume mm -hmm. that a general counsel's office is doing some of these things if really there is a, a independent, you know, data office. Yeah. I think that ideally we see a lot of documentation point to the chief data officer, and, and, and that sounds great, and if, the, if that's within an organization, happy for that to be, be there. But when we see the rubber meet the road, this is really an, ends up being a shared task. I don't mm -hmm. know if you have anything else to add to that, but you know, I know that we've had a lot of discussion on um, what's the ideal way, and then what is the way that, that we actually see in practice nine times out of 10. Yeah. Right, I mean, it, it's obviously not efficient to talk to everybody, but identifying you know, the key folks that would go in, your, your IT you know, systems engineer, you know, VP of, of uh, technology, is going to have a very different viewpoint than your CFO or your controller. Mm -hmm. And so kind of being able to identify the key individuals based on what Tripp said, the industry, kind of knowing the business processes, what's key, um, is really going to filter down into uh, kind of the top-down approach. So identifying those key folks at the executive level, taking it down into who is relevant at uh, the mid-level, who's relevant at the, at the floor level, uh, can kind of help us answer the questions of, 
where is this information? How is it protected? It's really smart, and I think a great way of putting it. So, um, as we talk through the process of, of what this looks like, Hunter, it's important to ask: How do you start? Where do you start? You know, what, how do you get things uh, moving in the right direction? Right. So, you know, alluded to it a little bit before. Um, started top-down approach. So, I taking um, you know the questions first to your your executive level management. Obviously, mm -hmm. needing to get support from them before we even start this program in the first place because we need that kind of buy-in from the top in order to start taking our way down to the bottom. And so knowing that once we get support from them, we identify the key businesses or key business processes as well as what's really core to that organization. So, you know, obviously we want to know how is the building, how are the lights staying on, but that's not necessarily critical to the organization from a business perspective. And so uh, once we take it down from, from the top, we can kind of work our way through and get to who are some of the director level folks, who are some mm -hmm. of the managers, who are the people that are in the weeds, the processors doing it every single day and knowing where can we identify the different security mechanisms in place over certain data, the data that we really care about, more so than um, just how are we keeping the lights on. Very important thing, but you know, different topic, not the one that we're covering today. Interesting, interesting. But an example people might use, and you can tell me if this works or not, is if the Buildings on fire. What's the you know the the metaphorical building is on fire? What mm -hmm. are the things that you grab first? Is that a way of thinking about crown jewel data and the things that are most important? Or if a ship is sinking, what are you grabbing and taking with you on the lifeboat? Right. Yeah. No. Great example. Um, it's kind of you know when when stuff's going wrong, what do you save first mm -hmm. type of thing? And you know most most companies have backups and replications in place to be able to do that stuff, but it's in the heat of the moment, what, what comes first in it? And it kind of reminds me of that uh, great episode of The Office where they go on the cruise and, and the manager's trying to figure out, like, he's doing an analogy, and it's kind of who do you say first in that moment. Yeah. And so a, an organization knowing the answer to that question will kind of help drive their data discovery, their data governance programs and data management and be able to, to protect uh, the stuff that matters most, kind of the, the crown jewels mm -hmm. what we've been talking about the whole time and to uh, put more resources towards that and to save on the other areas that may not be quite as important to your, uh, you know, your competitive advantage in the, in, in the industry. Hmm. I, I think also that the, the reason that these programs get a lot of initiative is usually because there's, there's been an issue before. Sure. So unfortunately, you know, this is something that once again sounds great, but it really doesn't get scrutiny or executive you know, support until there's a problem. So sometimes those are the things of, when you're starting to build these programs, you're building on top of, we've already had an issue or we had a scare, we had something that, that reprioritized this, this uh, good and valid program, mm -hmm. but maybe it was lower on our initiative list. Uh, so people you know, usually come a, a little bit more uh, interested if you're following up from a potential issue incident, maybe we had you know a discussion about something, um, but those drivers can can really affect the conversations and how how these programs are built. That's an interesting point, and it, it kind of takes us where we wanted to go next, and that was, what if you haven't had something go wrong yet? What's the benefit to looking at this and fixing it and, and working on it? If you're saying, hey, everything's going fine, why why do I need to disrupt that? Why do I need to take a look at these things? Right, I, th I think the the key piece for me, right, is that it's it keeps keeps you organized, yeah. um, and so it allows you to do this at scale, right? So it it, it works for now, and if you, if you you haven't had any problems, then that's great. Um, 
being being able to have your crown jewel data data uh, you know really analyzed, categorized, prioritized, it allows you to to be able to put those uh, safeguards mm -hmm. in place and make sure that you you know what to measure. So the key piece for me is you know if, if we're doing a security assessment um, and and we maybe you know if you think of security as concentric circles right the the, the layers of an onion right if we breach one of those layers then executives sometimes go, so what? What was the impact of that? And, and what was that particular issue? If we know what our crown jewel data is, then we can definitively state what is the risk to the organization mm -hmm. of, of what that potential breach could cause. And so we can better measure our environment and we can better estimate the impact of the other events around us. Without a crown jewel data assessment and really a data management program on top of that, we're really left shrugging our shoulders and going, well, I don't think so, but it doesn't really allow us to put you know, a, a nice, point on that to, to be able to make those def definitive statements. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one of the other things is you, you, if you, even if you're off by just a little bit, the further you go, the more that that becomes maximized, right? Like if I'm going to choose to walk in a direction for five miles, even if I'm one degree off, I'm going to end up, end up miles off of where I wanted mm -hmm. to, to be, right? And the same can be perhaps true of data, right? Just being a tiny bit off. If you go further downstream, you're going to end up much further away than you intended on being. I think the drift is real, right? I mean, for me, it's, I, I think about my house, right? If I don't keep my house super spotless clean, right? A, a few things stay out and then it, that starts to grow throughout the week until, until we need to do that pause and really do that deep, deep dive scrub. Mm. I think that's a great way of putting it. So Hunter, is there a typical point of failure in this endeavor? Is that something that, that you've seen regularly? So lately, a lot of it has to do with just getting started, um, mm. you know? That first step in really identifying what it is that we need to identify, yeah. basically, kind of, kind of, you know, understanding that part. A lot of individuals, you know, are able to say, you know, what we do is offer the X Y service X Y Z, mm -hmm. but you know, being able to identify is that service actually the one that's creating the competitive advantage. A lot of times it is. You know, most companies know what they're doing, um, but sometimes, you know figuring out what exactly is that starting point and then trickle down from there. Um, us, be it as you know, consultants, auditors, occasionally we'll run into the issues ourselves, not necessarily a company um, issue of knowing who exactly to identify. And mm -hmm. sometimes executives also, just because you know, the, there's a bit of a buffer between um, some levels of employees, uh, just you know, knowing who to identify, who is the processor we need to get in touch with. So. Uh, once you identify the starting point, that makes it a lot easier to kind of trickle down, as we mentioned before, you know, the top-down approach. Being able to identify who it is that we need to contact, what's the data that we need to know about, what's the data we don't know about and we need to do something about. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, really starting at, the, at that first part has always been the most difficult, just because this is such a new concept. Mm -hmm. you know? A lot of companies having difficulty knowing where to start, once you figure out where to start, it's pretty easy to just kind of take the steps down after that. I, th I think also the other failure point that we see sometimes is that that east-west component, that left and right, right? The, the product team or operations team, you know, thinks that they have a great grasp of that until, you know, until the end you bring in somebody that's an outside, a little bit of an outsider, right, of like yeah. the CFO, somebody from the financial side, or, or maybe it's an audit committee member or a board of director that has an entirely different perspective from quote-unquote operations or the product team or the service team. 
And so sometimes, you know, if we don't go broad enough, like Hunter was talking about, you know, that top-down approach can can be great. But if we don't get all all the right, you know, silos or levels or pillars or whatever you want to call it included and involved in that, then we can have a, a potential deviation at the end, right, of going, yeah, but that really couldn't cause a financial impact to the organization. So we need to make sure that we've got the right right people involved in that. And I think with that goes, you know, third parties and service providers. I think that's the other piece that we're seeing with a lot of organizations that you know, we think about the people that are just within our four walls or remote or wherever they are now, mm-hmm. but it's also all of our key partners and, and uh, service providers, uh, vendors, things of that nature of people that are maybe you know, not necessarily on our, on our uh, HR payroll, but they're, they're a constant connection into our environment and they, they help, you know, help us, but they also expose us as well, right? So yeah. they, they can be our point of exposure. Uh, through those embedded third parties. So that, that, that group would need to be included in these types of uh, programs as well. That's a great point. That really runs down the list of kind of stakeholders that need to be engaged in this process. Is there anybody else that you think should be engaged uh, when, when going through this? You know, we kind of hit on a lot of the folks. Obviously, mm-hmm. the executive management, you need support from them. Right. Starting point, Tripp mentioned the third party people that also need to be included, uh, especially because some some of the times we're seeing a lot more companies, you know, more and more SaaS products out there. Right. And just cloud services, a lot more heavier reliance on that kind of stuff as we kind of go into the future. And so uh, knowing, you know, where that is, identifying that kind of stuff and knowing at what, how much reliance do you actually put Mm -hmm. on your third party provider will kind of help you be able to make better decisions in the future regarding some of that information that we're talking about. And then, you know, obviously we work our way down to the, the management level, uh, the folks that are, you know, taking the orders from the top, passing them down through the chain, and then the processors that uh, really are in the weeds day to day. They're the ones who are taking care of the information, protecting mm-hmm. it, uh, doing a lot of the work that we all uh, need to see, you know, in order to, to say, okay, this is effective, not effective, you know, designed well, should be designed better, process improvements, other stuff kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's sometimes an assumption that goes with that of that general counsel's in-house, right? That, or do we have an outsourced general counsel function? Yeah. Do we have outside attorneys that we need to consider as far as that? Do we, do we outsource our IT function? We see a lot of organizations that have an outsourced IT function. So the business may be operating, but is, you know, is there an outsourced IT provider that can help weigh in to say, oh yeah, you have that there, but you also have it you know, backed up or replicated to these you know, three different cloud locations, or do we consider all of those, those additional nuances that may come in through, through people that are, once again, embedded in our organization, but are technically an outside, outside entity? That's a great point. Great point. So Hunter, this really brings us to a point where we can look forward and ask, where does a program like this take an organization and how does it get the organization ready for what the future holds? So it's, you know, a large ship turning, you know, that's not going to take a very, you know, short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, Takes, you know, obviously depending on the size of the ship, different lengths of time. You have a small boat, takes no time at all, but a large, you know, aircraft carrier, that's going to take... I've never been on one and turned it myself, so I can't say how long. But I know that you know the larger the company, the more time it's going to actually take for this to end up kind of turning in that direction. So mm-hmm. you know, anywhere from you know small organizations could take you know six months. Large organizations, several years. Just kind of depends on uh, the support that they get from the rest of the folks around them, uh, resources they get yeah. as well, and and just kind of you know the identifying the stuff we talked about. What's the crown jewel data? It could be that even though the organization is large, there really isn't that much crown jewel data to uh, really take part in. 
you know, if that's the case, then it may not take quite as long as they think, but there's also that element of discovery that goes into it. Uh, other major part, there's just more and more laws that are coming out too, as we've seen, state privacy laws. So CCPA from California is the one that's on the tip of everyone's tongue because that just came out first several mm -hmm. years ago, but Virginia, Colorado, and Utah have all recently passed theirs as well. Um, slightly different requirements, but for the most part, the same thing. And you also have the international component uh, GDPR in the Europe is going to be just the major one that everyone knows about off the top of their head, but you also have LGPD from Brazil, also uh, PIPL from China, uh, and there's several more that go, and those are just examples of some of them, but you know, different requirements for different ones, and if you do business in those countries or in those states or with residents of those states or of those countries, you really need to be aware of uh, those privacy laws that go into play and you know, how are we protecting our data? Are we conforming to what's required of us so that we don't get fines and get, you know, payout costs that are unnecessary? And that kind of brings to the last point, you know, going forward. This can allow companies to take steps in order to minimize costs in those areas. So maybe, you know, I'm looking at it, you know, we maybe we apply X amount of money to an entire web of different, you know, types of data systems and everything. But once we identify which ones are the most critical, we can kind of take take steps to reduce that spending and ultimately apply that to the more critical areas. And so, kind of, you know, saving costs in some ways and and doing, uh, you know, I think Trip mentioned it earlier. We see companies that are just having a difficult time for knowing what it is and, and spending is a big topic. You know, if it's never happened before, why do we have to spend money on it? Right. Uh, but, you know, if you're able to kind of identify which areas are not the most critical and save money in those areas, you can apply that to the other areas without really affecting uh, a company's bottom line mm -hmm. all that much. That's kind of noticeable and I think a lot of the uh, the security staff and the IT staff will probably be very thankful for that, not having to practice certain controls on everything and just focus it onto a more relevant area. Hmm. And I think that's where you, the other way that organizations can make progress on this going forward is, you know, to, to be able to say that a little a little action done frequently uh, can make that measurable difference. And I think that, you know, we talked about, you know, it could be mm -hmm. six months in, for a small organization, could be 18, 24 months, could be three years for a larger organization for these initiatives, depending upon who's involved, right? We, we need to recognize that this may not be a person's dedicated job currently, maybe it evolves to that, but but it's not not that way today. And so, can we add this on? Is this something that we can tack on to an executive retreat or a leadership, you know, quarterly meeting? Can we start to whiteboard as this type of initiative? And maybe that's before we transition to doing something like a full discovery assessment, you know, against a particular standard or framework. Uh, but can we can we do some of the prep work ahead of time? And I think that'll set it up an organization for you know being prepared to to not just respond, but also proactively manage and implement some of these procedures we're talking about. That's a great point. That's, that's a great point. Is there a good way for people to get more information on this if they want to reach out and ask questions or uh, find other resources? Is there a good place for them to go? So for us, it's Weaver.com. Yeah. Um, we're posting up there all the, all the time, and we're, we're trying to expand. And if there's any uh, thoughts, we're certainly interested in, in addressing, responding to any, any questions and, and new, new things that are coming about. Trip Hillman, Hunter Sundbeck. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here today and uh, sharing a little bit more about Crown Jewel data and uh, what we need to know about it and uh, what the future holds. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thanks Tyler. Tyler.
Absolutely. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. Of course, for more, visit Weaver.com. You heard Tripp mention it just now. But head over to Weaver.com. There's more resources there, more educational materials if you want to read up and learn more and also be able to find ways to reach out to the folks at Weaver. You can ask questions and get your questions answered there as well. And stay tuned. We'll be back soon with more episodes of the podcast. But for this one, for my guest today, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks for joining us.